Heavenly Father, we ask that you would indeed lighten our hearts, cast out our darkness, draw us to yourself. And Lord, we ask that humbly, we ask that you would make us lights in our families, in our homes, in our community, to one another, all through the Holy Spirit's work in us. Amen. Please be seated. I want to start out with some statistics. One in five women, according to the CDC, have experienced rape. One in eight men have experienced rape. The Barna Group, which is a Christian um, statistic group, records also that 64% of men say that they view pornography at least once monthly. 64%. And 18 to 33% say that they're addicted to it, that it's something they just can't break the habit of. Indeed, in many ways, a darkness has descended upon our land and sexual ethics. In the past several months, we've seen person after person fall with sexual scandal in the news, haven't we? Newscasters, directors, politicians, all because they couldn't maintain a sexual ethic. And by any measure, even by our own society's measure, we live in a sick society. I know you've heard it before, because I have. God doesn't really care what people do in the bedroom. It's a common sentiment. The logic goes that God's more concerned with the way that we treat one another in public. But this idea of a separation of what's done in private and what's done in public is a completely new thing. It's something that has come about only in modernity and only because we now have the ability to put up walls between one another. That dichotomy of private and public sin is not something that would have been found in the ancient world. It's not something that would be found even in the majority of Western culture, maybe going back as little as 70 years. The reasons for this dichotomy, I think, come because we don't live as close to one another as we once did. We're able to segment ourselves off. We're able to function individually. Think of just how you get your news now, right? And we shake the foundation of our society as we shake the foundation of our families, as we shake the foundation of ourselves as individuals, and we do so at our own peril. Unsurprising to most, I think, yet, the Bible has a great deal to say about human sexuality. And the Bible always talks about human sexuality in a greater picture. It talks about it, number one, in a family, the family of God's people in the Old Testament, and number two, as part of a discussion within a family of God's people in the church, in the New Testament. 
How does this fit with epiphany? You might be scratching your head. What does this have to do with shining Christ's light in the world to all the nations, the theme of the season we're in? Well, as I alluded to early on here, because this is, in fact, the great darkness, one of them, of our time. It's the great darkness of our country. And if we're going to shine any kind of light into that darkness, as Christians, as the church, as we're called to do, we have to look at what Scripture says about human sexuality. Because we're called not to live in that same darkness. Ephesians 5.8 says, For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. And today's sermon is not a complete treatment of this subject. We're going to be going over that in a class during Lent. But the lectionary readings put together for today make it impossible to avoid the subject, which in my opinion is a good thing. You see, I want us to look at three different points. Number one, God is concerned with your sex life. Number two, there's a link between your sex life and your spiritual life. And number three, we are, without exception, called to lead chaste lives. We are, without exception, called to lead chaste lives. Let's look at the first point together. God's concerned with your sex life. It's a strange thing to talk about in church, I have to admit. It's strange standing up here in the pulpit talking about it for cultural reasons or the fact that we don't say these things in polite society. You know, there used to be, and in my opinion still ought to be, something dear and sacred and intimate and covered about a person's sexuality. It's not to be flaunted. It's not to be put on display. It's a most wonderful and holy gift of God exchanged in a holy context and in a holy way. And yet we must speak about it. You might be thinking to yourself, well, at my stage of life, what sex life, right? And one of the ways that this topic affects us is that we're seeing, and we see in Scripture, that our sexuality is not just something to be acted upon. It's actually something that's created in us as part of us. And it's also something that sin touches and sin affects and something that has to be redeemed by God in all of us without exception. Right? Sex vies to be the main narrative of our culture today. It vies to be the definer of people. It vies to be the giver of happiness. And in many ways, the narrative that we all partake since we live in this place at this time is that somehow sex is a God, a bringer of happiness, a bringer of contentment, a bringer of intimacy. Yet that's a very dangerous place to be. C.S. Lewis writes that we may give our human loves the unconditional allegiance which we owe only to God. Then they become gods. Then they become demons. They will destroy us and also destroy themselves. For natural loves that are allowed to become gods do not remain loves. They're still called so, but can, in fact, become forms of complicated hatred. 
Now, what C.S. Lewis is saying there is that when you elevate something out of its proper place, particularly eros, or a typical type of love, the sexual type, when you put that up on a pedestal and plug everything else into it, it becomes a demon because it enslaves and rules. And everything else becomes subservient unto it. And anyone that's ever been part of, ever been stuck in a habit knows that that that's what happens with addictions and habits and emotional problems. That everything is laid at the altar of that thing. It's more than the act. It's a mindset. And it's that mindset that traps both Christian and non-Christian alike. Whether you're waiting to get married, whether you're married, whether you're widowed, that trap remains for you to see it as a God. But God's created us in our bodies and speaks about sexuality and spirituality countless times if we look at it. Jesus, of course, primarily teaches on marriage in Matthew 19.4 when he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So if they are no longer two but one flesh, what therefore God hath joined together, let not man separate. Matthew 19, 4 through 6. And we see a really interesting example in the first reading today of what happens when sexuality is put in place of God. You probably didn't catch it because it's not part of the text today, but it precedes it. So if you have your Bible with you, open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and 3. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and 3. And as you're opening, you probably all know this story, right? It's the story of Samuel being called to serve God. You know, we learn this one in Sunday school. But one of the things that we don't learn in Sunday school, most assuredly, is that Samuel is in fact replacing false priests and prophets by the name of Hopni and Phineas, the two sons of Eli. And what's going on in this passage is that Hopni and Eli have been blaspheming by God. They've been stealing from the temple, and they've been sleeping with young women that come to the temple, to the meeting place. And on the other hand, we have this figure, Hannah, Samuel's mother, who's been barren and prays for a son we read in 1 Samuel 1, 27 and 28, when the Lord grants Hannah a son, for this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. But what's actually going on here, if we look back, is that this is God's replacement. Look at second, or 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered 
to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Boy, that's, that's harsh, but that's the Bible. <laughs> the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests and the people was that when they made an offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites that came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat, but only the raw. But if the man said to him, Let him burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. And the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. But it gets worse. Jump down in your Bibles there to um, verse 22. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing in Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. So do you see what's going on? Do you see the theft and the misuse of sexuality that's going on in God's name by his priests? God effectively responds to this by making Eli's family barren and sterile. Hopni and Phineas are actually killed in battle later on and destroyed. And no longer is the family of Eli allowed to serve in the temple. But instead, Samuel is brought in. And can you imagine the first task that Samuel's given to speak from the Lord to Eli is to tell him these things. To tell him these things, that his family is going to be destroyed. And to Eli's credit, he said, well, let the Lord do what's best as he sees it. There's a link between your sex life and your spiritual life. And it's not a coincidence that the Bible puts those two stories of theft and misuse of sexuality with power in the same context. Now turn with me to the epistle reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. Let's look at that together. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. This is Paul talking to the church in Corinth. I'm going to start with actually a little bit into 13. God will destroy both one and the other. That is the body and food. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? The earlier parts of this verse is actually a play on Greek words, and I don't want to get into that, talking about the food. It, 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 it would take a long time to parse out 
needless to say, what St. Paul is saying here is that the body is not meant to be something thrown away for the Christian. That the body is something that God creates with a purpose. And part of that purpose of being a Christian is to be embodied. And the word here for sexual immorality is actually pornoi. Pornoi. That's the Greek word. And what is that? Well, we obviously get the English word pornography from it, but it also means in the Greek, any unlawful sex. And what does the Bible define as unlawful sex? Any kind of sex outside of the holy sacrament of marriage. So what this verse is talking about is any sex outside of marriage is against God's will and purpose for our bodies. He outlines it pretty clearly. Sex outside of God's law is clear from scripture. It's the act of sexual desire outside of marriage simply as a blanket statement. But then there's the particulars. The acting out of sex with relatives. Incest. The acting of sex with people of the same gender. Homosexuality. The acting out of sex with animals. Bestiality. The acting out of sex for money or power. Prostitution. All of these are explicitly against the law of God because they hurt the Christian, because they hurt all people actually that engage in them. They hurt the soul, and ironically, they destroy the very intimate beauty of sex as God made it. You see, it's supposed to be a gift used for his honor and for our good. And when we use it outside of the parameters, we destroy it for ourselves and for other people. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, the beginning of our reading today. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor idlers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. God takes this very seriously. And notice, what's linked together? Why is it that sexual sin is linked with thievery, or greed, or drunkards, or revilers, which actually is a, a word that means mischief makers, or swindlers? Because the larger context of what Paul's talking about here is sex inside of a family community life. And all of those things destroy family or community life. Sex not accepted. You see, they're put together intentionally here so that we in our temptation can't parse out these things and say, well, this sin is worse than this sin is worse than this sin. And yet, St. Paul does say that sexual immorality is worse because of its effects on us because it actually is a sin against our own bodies. All of these, however, break God's law. And you and I, as Christians, are supposed to be keepers of God's law. Oh, true, we are imperfect keepers of God's law. Lord knows, I'll be the first to say that I kneel with you every week and confess my sins because I don't live up to it. And yet, that's what we're called to do. We're called not to be twisted up 
and not to be unhelpful to those around us, but to be lights in the darkness. Just like Hopney and Phineas in the Old Testament, for the sake of God's holy Christian family, Christians cannot serve both God and his or her own lusts. That's not the Christian project. We have to drive that darkness from us, turning to God, not embrace it. Verses 17 and 19 of this passage also speak to that, saying, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you are from God? As followers of Jesus, we're joined to him, and therefore, our third point, we are all without exception called to lead chaste lives. Now, what is a chaste life? You know, it's not a word that's even common anymore because, and as a matter of fact, I suspect leading a chaste life doesn't make any sense to our culture. Leading a chaste life means that sexuality fits into something greater than itself. It fits into something objective, an objective rule or law. And our culture will have none of that. We say it's all subjective. It's all my preference. It's all my desires. If you haven't heard that word lately, chastity or being chaste, I think that's why. But you can also translate the word pure. And it's also translated pure in the Bible. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 is an example. I'll read from the King James, which uses the word chaste. For I have espoused you to one husband, Paul says to the church, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. As a chaste virgin, as a pure virgin. Well, how is that? Because the married, the unmarried, the single, the divorced, the widowed, we're all called to be chaste in Christ. Outside of marriage, one has to abstain from sex out of obedience to God as an act of righteousness in accordance with God's law both for your own sake and for the sake of others. We don't have the right to use others for our own desires. We don't even have the right to fulfill and gratify our own desires. Do we do this? Ephesians 2.3, Paul again writes to the church in Ephesus, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So the the end of living out your own desires, your lusts, is to be a child of wrath. But do we offer ourselves to others cheaply? As a Christian, you have no right to do that. Stop it. Repent. Verse 19 and 20 of our passage today speaks to this too. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You and I aren't our own, friends. Jesus died for your body and for your soul. This includes being cheap about sexual material, pornography, We ought to ask ourselves if 
we're exposing ourselves to things that are becoming culturally acceptable on one hand, but are manifestly unhelpful in our relationship with Jesus. If you're engaged in that, stop, repent. Are we helping drive an industry that practices human sex trafficking? That's a great injustice in addition to violating God's law. It's destroying those people. Stop. Repent. Inside of marriage, do we confine our sexual actions of thought, word, and deed to our spouse? Do we have firm boundaries about physical and emotional closeness with people of the opposite sex? Are we being chased with our sex lives? Just because you're married doesn't give you license to be ruled by the demon of lust. I've met far too many people that think that's the case. That think that once they get married, they've got a license to do whatever they want. I got news for you. That's not true. If it's not glorifying to God and edifying to your spouse, it is not of God and not godly. And you not, ought not to surrender to it. Do our sexual acts honor God in the created order? Do they build up our spouse and our family? Do they build up the kingdom of God? I know it's a strange thing to think about, right? That your sex life can actually be helpful or a hindrance to the kingdom of God. But God's word says it can because it forms you and me. If in fact you struggle with these things, I'm not preaching this sermon to condemn you. That's not the point here. The point is that as the church, we have this very strange position of having to promulgate the word of God, the truth, in all of its unvarnished goodness, however confrontational it may be, and yet help those that struggle with it. But I am here to say, we have to repent of such things and understand with clarity the evil and wickedness of such things if we're going to be of any help to anybody including ourselves. Seek God in prayer on these things if you struggle. Seek counsel among your fellow Christians if you have trouble being chaste in whatever stage you're in. Seek confession. Confession, whether it's between you and the Lord in the privacy of your home or if it's coming to me as your priest. Seek that. Hear the word of God spoken into your darkness. It's too important for you not to act on these things. It's too important for your soul for you not to pay the money to go get counseling if you need counseling to get away from these things. It's our duty to help one another in these things. You know, all of us in our baptismal and confirmational vows swore off the desires of the flesh, the world, and the devil. If we're married, we're married into a holy estate instituted by God in the time of man's innocence, as the prayer book says. And if we're not married, we're called to be chaste as well for the sake of ourselves and for the sake of others. Because God is not about letting us go down the road to destruction. Rather, God is about restoring his relationship between man and himself the relationship between man and woman, the relationship between our, ourselves, our well-being, our wholeness. Dearly beloved, as we say at the beginning of the marriage service, and I say to you today, 
in this part of things, let us too walk as children of the light. Amen.